Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Joshua shares his path from Princeton to investment banking at Credit Suisse. Learn why it wasn't a great fit for him, his surprising transition out, the risks and benefits of not having a clear direction, and how he landed at an exciting small business experiencing rapid growth. I really enjoyed this chat because there was a lot of honest reflection about burnout, private equity recruiting, trying to find your way, and the importance of exploration and faith in your abilities to find interesting opportunities, many which you'd never know about unless you were actively looking. So enjoy. All right, Joshua, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Aces podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a quick summary of your bio. Sure. So uh, I went to Princeton University where I majored in politics and international relations. Um, when it became pretty clear that I wasn't going to be a diplomat, I started looking uh, towards the finance world, did an investment banking internship at Credit Suisse in the industrials group, uh, enjoyed my summer, went back full time um, and you know, did the beginning of the analyst program there, was there for about a year and a half, dipped my toes in the water when it came to buy side recruiting and realized that uh, it wasn't right for me at the time uh, and neither was staying at Credit Suisse. So I left and took a finance and operations job at a music tech, ad tech business in New York City called F Sharp. So I was there for a little while running everything from you know accounts payable, accounts receivable, to benefits, to HR, um, before leaving there for an opportunity at uh, Concertive, which was actually called KBB Partners at the time. Uh, I was the first employee there after the co-founders. Uh, in 2015, and I've been there for uh, nearly five years. It'll be five years in July. So I started there as a senior analyst, uh, and now I am the co-president and chief operating officer. Awesome. Congrats. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you guys do there? Yeah. So Concertive is a platform where we advise and support high-end professional services firms in some of their major spend categories. So we help them spend efficiently and save money in travel, uh, market data and research, insurance, and IT. Mm -hmm. And our customers are investment banks, private equity firms, hedge funds, and law firms. Um, and we, where we can, aggregate their spend together um, and negotiate on behalf on their behalf as a group, so we get better buying power in those categories that I ran through. Very cool. I, I love the business model. It's really interesting. It's like one of those group. Uh, I've seen that in other spaces. Not in. I didn't realize it existed in 
like define yeah, it it's pretty it common in like healthcare benefits for midsize and small companies and you know there's a big company called core trust that does like ups and pallets and things like that so yeah. we've assembled a really interesting buying group of high-end professional services buying things that are expensive in, in opaque markets uh, and giving you know boutique mid-size firms the type of leverage that's usually reserved for, you know, the JP Morgans or Goldman Sachs's of the world. Very cool. So let's go back to your story all the way back at Princeton. Let's talk about um, specifically, um, you know, even getting into Princeton is super tough. So congrats <laughs> on that. But just in terms of like your, your life there and um, your major and kind of shifting, what, what kind of prompted you, um, you know, you said when you figured out you weren't going to be a diplomat or whatever, what prompted you to like be attracted to finance? Was it just because a lot of your buddies were doing it too? Yeah. I mean, if you're at Princeton, it's some crazy proportion of people go into investment banking or consulting. Yeah. Um, my path was a little bit less direct. I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. Um, for my first summer, uh, after my freshman year, I just ran an SAT tutoring business um, in my hometown. So it wasn't like I was predestined to work in investment banking. You're entrepreneurial. Uh, entrepreneurial. Yeah, exactly. So I had, you know, I was interested in education and, and being entrepreneurial. So did that. And then the following year, kind of by coincidence, I got a, uh, internship at ISI, which is an equity research firm that was since acquired by Evercore. Um, okay. and that was really my introduction to the world of finance. Um, and I liked it <laughs> and I liked, uh, the research side of it, but didn't think that that's where I was really best suited. So I got back on campus the next year and a bunch of guys who were my mentors on a personal basis had, were a year ahead of me, had gone through that whole process and recommended that I try it out. So I bought the vault guide <laughs> and, and just, you know, rehearsed. And I think part of it was that. I can't I believe you didn't buy the I, the WSO guide. Come on, man. No, just kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> we, we should have briefed ahead of time. Um, <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I, I looked at well, every resource I could. I'm sure, I'm sure I was on your site as well. And <laughs> to learn about, you know, get interview tips. And that's, that's proof that this is not scripted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I can confirm. Um, so I, I was also at a point where I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Right. My... Uh, you know, I intentionally went to a liberal arts school because I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. Um, but then it got to the point where I was like, okay, I should really develop some skills that are marketable. <laughs> um, so, and one of the things that it being at a target school is that they come to you and the pr learning from people who are older than me was, okay, here's the process, which is, these are essentially the interview questions that are going to ask you, here are good answers to them. Here was my experience at this bank or the other one. Um, so I felt really well prepared for it. Um, and it was satisfying to me as someone who's driven, you know, academically without, you know, really knowing what I wanted to do with my life to essentially have a, you know, a path to follow and instructions to follow, mm -hmm. uh, which it, I don't know if that's super inspiring, but it's really the truth. No, uh, I mean, similar to me. I mean, I was at liberal arts, I was at Williams and we were basically just, I felt the same way. It's like, almost like you're, you're good in school, but it doesn't mean you really know where you want to go or what you want to do. And for lack of a better place, I mean, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of smart kids fall into that same boat. It's like, Oh, you can go somewhere where you're paid really well. It's, it's fast paced. You can learn a lot. Yeah. It's like, Hey, what's not like, then you can be yeah, exactly. live in New York. 
It's exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, I had friends who knew they wanted to be doctors or friends who knew they wanted to be lawyers or friends who knew one of my best friends is a philosophy PhD and he's now a professor. Mm -hmm. That's great, but it wasn't what I wanted. Um, but I did know I wanted, just like you said, something fast paced where I was surrounded by smart, ambitious people. Mm -hmm. And that was a way to get there. Um, did you have any sort of um, reservations? I know during this time, like while you were in school, there was a lot of like the Occupy Wall Street. Did you feel ever any pressure like from family or, or, or whatnot not to go into that? Or are they in finance? <laughs> uh, well, I, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, right outside Manhattan. So uh, my father's in finance and okay. a lot of their parents are too. So I had a no. different perspective at the time. Um, yeah. Although, uh, uh, anyway, that's a different topic. We said we wouldn't do politics, but no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, um, no, I mean, I, if you, if you talk politics with me, I'm very, I'm very much, uh, I very not educated enough to actually have any good opinions. So you could Same. You can convince me of whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that was part of kind of the culture at Princeton, which was that there were those factors of, you know, Wall Street not having a great reputation, particularly investment banking. And uh, but there is similarly a really large cohort of people who are that's what they want to do, yeah. um, which is just fine. So it wasn't really that controversial of something to be going into. Yeah, no, it makes sense where you, where you lived in like your social circles, your parents, like whatever. It's exactly. Just, yeah. I knew those people weren't necessary, weren't evil because right. they worked in finance. Um, so, right. uh, you know. Cool. Okay. So you're kind of, it's, it's surprising me that, you know, you waited till junior year, given that your father, was your father an investment banker or was this, was it other people? No, he uh, was an economist. Oh, economist. Oh, interesting. So, um, he kind of had some inkling of what the industry was like, or he had potentially some friends in the industry. And had you, is, does it surprise you looking back that it took you to kind of to junior year to be like, this is what I want to do? Or is it, is it kind of like you're young and do you expect yeah. like when you, when you list, like a lot of people listening to this are super young. Right. Right. And so do you feel like it's a huge advantage knowing earlier, like the kids that did know earlier? Yeah, I didn't feel disadvantaged. Although when I think back about my recruiting experience as my junior year, mm -hmm. it wasn't like every investment bank was banging down my door to interview. Um, I I was looking back and seeing the number of applications I sent and the number of cover letters, and my acceptance rate of even getting interviews was pretty low. Like five percent um, or twenty percent? What do you think? Uh, probably between five and ten percent. Yeah, pretty low. That's that was. I mean. But you're, at a, you're at a competitive school though. Yeah. Too. So like yeah, you're, was, I was applying for investment banking and also sales and trading without actually being that interested, I think in the sales and trading side. Yeah. So I sent those interviews out and maybe it came through in my cover letters that I wasn't <laughs> that interested. Um, but you know, I think that there were definitely people who were better prepared than I was and they probably got more interviews and did better at those interviews. But how do you think they showed that they were more prepared just by having an internship like somewhat related to finance in their freshman and sophomore year? Yeah, I, not for, or, not sure or GPA or like GPA. I think my GPA was fine. I think maybe they had better answers for why are you interested in this? And my answer to why I was interested in it was probably pretty similar to how I just answered your question about it, which was like, yeah, I don't really know what I want to do, but you're giving me structure, which is, you know, not that great of an answer when you're a job candidate. Um, and so I think people who had had not just that were better prepared or had done the previous internships, but had thought harder about why they were actually interested in doing it 
were actually probably more successful than I was at the interviews. So um, do you feel like, at, so when you said you applied in around five, 10%, whatever, was it, was that the, was that the uh, application to interview rate or was that the application to offer rate? So you're saying you applied to say 20 positions on campus. Yeah. How many first round interviews did you get? I think I got about five first okay. round interviews. So it's like 25%. Yeah. And then, there. and then just two, did I like really move through the process on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it came down to city and credit Suisse. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me how you kind of thought about the process of making that decision. I know it's super hard. They're both great firms. So. Yeah, no, they're, they're both great. And also it was a slightly different time uh, in 2007, 2008 than now. And I, you know, for example, Credit Suisse had a lot more focus on their investment banking than I think they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it was, it came down to a lot of the people who I actually interacted with as part of the process. Okay. Um, so that's not a knock on city at all, but you know, you, and maybe that's not even a smart way to have thought about it, but it is how I thought about it, which is that you get introduced to the people who are your college's representatives at you know, on the recruiting side from the firm. And I just, I bonded with some of the Credit Suisse folks. Some of them I actually knew previously from campus. Um, So that really sold me on it. So you make those applications, you kind of get through the, the gauntlet, the interview gauntlet for um, the summer internship. Tell me a little bit about the ones you flamed out on. Was there specific things you think, besides having a little bit too generic of answers or anything, was there anything else in particular where like you were surprised by certain technical questions, uh, behaviorals, anything like that that you can remember? Um, it was, I will say it really came down to the fact that they snuffed it out that I hadn't really prepared as well as I should have for some of the more specific questions. And, and even the ones that were obvious, I think it's really worth preparing for. which is, you know, why are you interested in going into investment banking? Mm -hmm. And why are you particularly interested in our firm? In our firm. Those two, you have to have those two down. (laughs) And like, it seems so obvious. And now, you know, I won't say how many years later it is. It's like, okay, Josh, you know, 20 year old, you should have figured that out. Um, Especially because when you're on these on-campus interviews, and it's true everywhere is that there's so much interest in the roles from the candidates you're, you know, these were at our career services and I'm sitting in the waiting room with, you know, a hundred other people I know. So if you give a mediocre response, you're not going to move forward <laughs> because they know there, you know, there's a line of people who would like to, you know, give a better response than that. I think one thing that I was surprised about, but pleasantly surprised is that they didn't really get technical at all. Uh, maybe they knew from looking at my resume that I was a politics major who's liberal arts. Yeah, liberal arts. I, you know, they could ask me an IR question, um, but they did ask kind of general questions to just say, you know, gauge whether I had any interest in the markets, <laughs> just to you know make it kind of vague. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think I probably did well because I, you know, I am interested in it and was at the time too. But I think I probably didn't have the layer of specificity. Yeah, and having a dad who's an economist, it probably helped you talk a little bit more general market trends, Fed, like, you know, interest rate policy, all that stuff. Yep, that's right. Interesting. Yeah, I think I could see how that would be. My guess, listening to you, is that that kind of saved you. Because if you were able to talk intelligent with the market, you're like, okay, this kid, he gets it. You know what I mean? Even if you didn't have the like dinner table conversations. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay, interesting. So you're, um, your internship, so your junior year internship, you're kind of going into this thinking, here we go, I got to land this full-time offer so I can enjoy my senior year. Yeah. Um, 
what was, were you stressed out? What was the thought process going into that? Um, did you kind of know what to expect? Um, yeah. you know, grueling hours, all the, all the stories you hear, or was it, um, less stressful? Uh, I, I guess on paper, I knew what to expect. There's with the grueling hours, there's nothing quite like actually living it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the internship is still, it feels fun when you're doing it. Cause you're like, Oh, I'm kind of playing investment banker at that point. And yeah. I was, it was, it was so exciting to like be in Manhattan and living there and, you know, be subletting an apartment and being with my friends and having some of that freedom that I had a really good time. Mm-hmm. And it was my first like real corporate experience too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was fun. And I really liked the group of people I was with in the industrials group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed it and I learned a ton and I realize now that I knew nothing, but you know, given that I didn't have a ton, I didn't do internships like that after my freshman or sophomore year, everything was new. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because the next step after, you know, you get the offer a few, they'll have a networking event a few months later and then you start ranking and preferencing which groups you want to be in. And I remember Googling furiously to like figure out what a financial sponsors group was. And cause I was like, Oh, that's what everybody wants to do. Like, what the heck is it? Um, and I, I was just really naive and uh, I didn't really know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up wanting to do industrials because it was just, I thought it would be good exposure to a variety of companies and also every product that the firm had mm-hmm. ECM, DCM, M and A. And I, I ended up being right about that. Mm-hmm. But my summer, it was, you know, drinking out of a fire hose, but I, I think I learned a lot, but I had a really good time. <laughs> Do you think you're working like 70, 80 hours a week, something like that? Yeah, I think that's probably right. But, or, and probably there were weeks where I did more, but definitely didn't have to where, yeah. you know, that was part of it was like, okay, I want to figure out what it's like to work these grueling hours and, yep. or even, you know, just to get a sense of it because, you know, you want to get the offer, but you also want to figure out, is this something I want to do as my job? And so did you feel like, was the offer rate, were the um, intern to full-time offer rates high that year? I can't remember. I, I could look it up. Yeah, but. they were high that year. I think in our group, just one or maybe two people didn't get out of a no, pretty like, big class, like 12 or 15 12 people. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, okay. it's a big group. Um, but it's the kind of thing where you get different advice over the course of the summer where some people will say, uh, you know, ever just don't screw up. And you'll get it. And then others will say, you know, we're, you know, times are tough. We're only looking for half. So yeah. you do stay on your toes. And I definitely worked really hard <laughs> that summer. So at least you're getting paid, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, and more than usual because I think they paid us overtime. Yeah. So uh, you're like, whoa. <laughs> that's not an accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, so interesting. So you're kind of going through that. Um, tell me when you kind of knew you had, tell me the, the process of like when they pull you in and they tell you you have the full time, like are you stressing yeah. until the last second or do you kind of start getting an inkling that you're going to get it? I was pretty confident, but didn't want to be overconfident because then it would be devastating, but they, it wasn't a surprise when they were going to do it. Mm-hmm. It was essentially like, this is the you know second to last day of the internship. Like this is your time slot to meet with the group COO. Um, and we'll tell you yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I was extreme. I would say I was relieved more than anything. Um, but also because I didn't have to then look for a job. I was like, this is the difference between my senior year being amazing and, and slightly less amazing. So yeah. I was definitely relieved. Cool. So you, uh, you go into that meeting, they tell you, congratulations. You yeah. know, we want to extend you a full-time offer. 
And yeah. are you expected to like by, decide by, you know, 30 days from now, if you want a bonus, essentially. Got it. Oh, so tell me about that. What do you mean? If you, oh, if you want like a uh, sign up. There was a signing, but I think it was a relocation bonus, but mm-hmm. essentially it was phased. Uh, there were triggers on it. So I, I, um, I'll butcher exactly what the timeframes were, but you know, if you accept it within 30 days, it was X. If you accepted within four months, it was half of X and then you just lost it uh, if you didn't decide. So I didn't shop my offer at all. I was, I liked the group. I liked the firm and I realized that that's what I wanted to do. So I just, you know, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So you sign, you have a great uh, senior year, I assume. Yeah. A blast. Yeah. It was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as you're kind of approaching getting ready um, and moving to the big city, did mm-hmm. you uh, have roommates? What was the, was the kind of. Yeah. I lived with uh, one of my good friends from growing up who had, also had a job locked up, but in, in advertising where the hours were pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to push him to move to an apartment that was like three blocks away from the credit suisse building at Madison Square Park. So that, uh, to accommodate my hours. Nice. Um, and then, you know, in this, that summer, uh, when you're in training again, it's pretty fun because <laughs> there are all these networking events and you're meeting all these people. Um, and you know, all the data room companies are throwing events for you. Um, and you just have to remember to study for your series exams somewhere like in the, there. Uh, like the intralinks of the world. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Sorry, I'm just turning off my notifications. I'm getting beeped. Um, and so I think, um, so you're kind of loving the training, right? And then reality hits, you get out of training, and it's like, boom, you're thrown to the wolves. Yeah. Um, I remember that time. It was like, Training, like we were, I was with Rothschild and they flew us to London. We're training, we're like having like the best time ever. Um, and then coming back, a little more training in New York, and then your kind of reality hits of yep. uh, real life, uh, real world work. And uh, it's tough. The hours are tough. It's grueling. And I felt like I didn't even have a, an internship. So you probably were a little ahead of the, further ahead than I was. I knew nothing about like financial modeling, I was completely green. Yeah. So it was, it was, it's, it's really tough. Even before you start thinking about the hours is that, you know, the kids had, who had gone to undergraduate business schools Mm -hmm. were miles ahead of me when it came to the financial modeling. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty useless early on. And that's not a super comforting feeling when you're in a high paced, intense environment and you've realized that you don't know what you're doing. And then the first time where that happens and it's two in the morning can be, uh, you know, a pretty brutal feeling. It is incredibly stressful. Yeah. I remember I like, I have, I'm like a notoriously amazing sleeper. I can sleep like 14, 15 <laughs> hours in high school. And I remember it, my banking days, like the first few months, I remember it was like one of the few times I had like hadn't slept for 20 hours and then I couldn't sleep. I had like insomnia. Yeah. No, because it was just like, I was getting pushed by like an associate to figure out the model and i think it's because he didn't know how to do it either because he yeah. was like <laughs> he's an hbs grad he's like yeah yeah you're gonna own the model on this and i'm like okay you realize i have no clue Is that what they tell you yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, my, no- my, it was a really it was a hard life adjustment because my ratio of like sleep to exercise to caffeine was completely off and that was compounded with being in an, an environment that's stressful even when you know what you're doing and really not having any idea. I didn't know how, you know, one of the first projects I was staffed on was for a gold mining company. And, you know, I'm looking at these extremely complex 
forget about even the financial modeling, just like the operating models. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it's pretty scary to have no idea what you're doing when also the numbers that you're, you know, making calculations on are like an order of magnitude higher than anything. And it, you know, there's a lot of impact. Um, so that, that's a pretty scary feeling. And it's, it's an environment, I think this is probably different group to group and firm to firm, but mm -hmm. mostly the culture is not, you know, super like forthcoming well, about like asking for help and saying that you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know. Even it, early on, you didn't feel like that a little bit. I mean, I, I basically, eventually the associate has to do something, right? Or, yeah. or I remember for me, it was almost like the associate, I realized, you know, a few weeks in that the associate had no clue what he was doing either. Like yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. And so then it was like, it was a total train wreck. And I realized the only way I was going to figure this out is like, eventually the VPs just ignored the associates started coming straight to me. And I was like, look here, this, this, and I just started working directly with the VP. Yeah. And yeah. then it became so much more efficient. He sat down and trained me like with like certain basics and that boom. And like, I eventually within a few months became actually somewhat serviceable. And then yeah. six months I was a machine. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think you got to find you got to find the right people who are willing right. because they're working crazy hours too to set aside the time to help you. Yeah. Um, but you have to find who those people are. And it is uh, no offense to any of the listeners. It's probably not the first year associate um, who started the same time you did. Um, yeah. Um, and it's oftentimes, you know, some of the more senior second, analysts. Our second year analyst is usually good. Who's already checked out who yeah, like exactly. <laughs> who already got their buy side job. Yeah, uh, still here. <laughs> exactly. That's a good, that's a good uh, piece of advice. Look yeah. for the second or third year analysts who are headed out the window. Yeah. They're, they're checked out. So they're not like super stressed about their stuff and they may have a few hours here and there. That's right. Downtime to, to that's right. take your, your clueless, clueless self up the, up the learning curve a little bit. So, okay. So it's a brutal first few months. It sounds like, because you're just like floundering. Yeah. Um, like I was, <laughs> what kind of, who was that person for you? Did you eventually find somebody that, that kind of helped you? Um, yeah, there were, there was a, um, my source of comfort were my own analyst class. I think we were pretty tight knit. It was since the yield was pretty good from our, uh, intern summer. summer. Yeah. We knew each other pretty well going into it. And I think it was, it was collaborative instead of being competitive. So that was really helpful. And then we subdivided into verticals within industrials. And once we did that, I started focusing in paper and packaging. And there was a really strong group of uh, experienced analysts in, on that team who really started showing me the ropes. And that's when I started knowing what I was doing, <laughs> which was reassuring. That's awesome. It but, feels good, doesn't it? When you actually start producing work product that like, you're like, okay, I'm adding some value. <laughs> Exactly. And having trust uh, is really, or gaining that trust and, and, you know, speaking in meetings <laughs> instead of just being on mute and being told not to announce yourself. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, okay. So you're there. Um, it sounds like you kind of got up the learning curve within what, six months or so. You think you're, yeah, I think that's right. And you're kind of hit, you're, you kind of started getting your reps in. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty common, um, especially from people, kids with large backgrounds. So then you, kind of get through your first year your first bonus i assume is pretty good um not uh, a great year but. well it was fine i would say one thing they did when that they announced to us uh, at the end of training was that they were changing the schedule of the bonus 
So uh, stub. Yeah, so they gave us a stub in December, which they hadn't really warned us about. And instead of tiering people into buckets, everybody got the same. Um, which I, of course, I felt I was the best performer in the group. So I, I thought I got short shrift on that. It was still, you know, the largest single check I'd ever received up until that point, which was exciting. But I guess is around a $30,000 check. Twenty. Yeah, I think it was a little less than that, but, you know, approximately. Okay. And, um, you know earlier times and yeah um yeah so that was a little bit misleading so they they changed our schedule um to make so it they december. changed it so you got you got a december stub meeting six months in you get kind of a half year bonus yeah and then do they do another kind of half year bonus um that you have to wait the whole next year to get yeah, the whole month. next year and then not to spoil but i, I left before then mm. um <laughs> so it started, I, I started being, uh, you know, kind of disenchanted with it, uh, probably about a, a year in the following summer. Uh, and it was really when I started doing the buy side recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going back to the questions you asked about those other interviews, I started doing the PE recruiting really without having any idea if I was interested in it at all. Um, and <laughs> this seems to be a pattern. Jeff, yeah. We got to stop this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about my current job. But you know, when we got to, which I like a lot. But you know, yeah. when I was doing the PE recruiting, and you know, I did it because it was the next step. And as some of your listeners know, is you know, I was getting emails from headhunters while I was still in training, and I hadn't even figured out if I liked my current job. Uh, and I was they were already starting to think about the next one. And then you know, when you're sitting there late at night in the bullpen, everyone is dreaming about moving over to the buy side because you get told, you know, it's less work and more money. But then, you know, you send out a meeting invite at two in the morning that has, you know, lawyers on it and, you know, PE guys on it. And they're accepting that invite at two in the morning. So, you know, they're up too. Yeah. You start learning that, you know, maybe that's not the case. So, you know, it's not just about lifestyle, but you know, I also found I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, so I started doing some of the recruiting. And when they were asking me the question of, you know, why do you want to do this? I remember in one of my first interviews, and I won't name the firm. Um, and I got a few interviews. And this was on like a Sunday morning or something. And Oh, was this on cycle? Like the craziness? Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So yeah, yeah. like, that so, is a gauntlet, man. Yeah, you know, you're going to some of these cocktail events, and then all of a sudden, like everybody, you know, <laughs> Breaks out, you get that first email, whoever moved first that year, and then your life kind of turns upside down and you got to be doing your real job still, which was already a kind of unsustainable number of hours. And then also, you know, practicing your LEO modeling and figuring out what answers you're going to give. And I get, remember the first interview I had, it was a principal at a private equity firm or in this beautiful wood panel building uh, room. And he goes, so, you know, why do you want to work in private equity? I give my answer. And he goes, that is just a terrible that's just a terrible response. Like, this is, I don't know if you're testing me or if you're, if you mean it, but either way, uh, this is not good. Um, he said that, or you were thinking that I was thinking that yeah. uh, answer was his response. His response was, was just that's like, terrible. And then answer. that was it. And then, yeah. and then, you know, we, we had to talk for another 25 minutes, but it was obvious that it wasn't really going anywhere, but that I was, undeterred at that point I still interviewed for uh, probably a few more probably a month or two after that flew to some places and it was just nothing I was there were no good fits <laughs> of things I wanted to do that coupled with places I got offers for 
And then. So you did get some offers, but it was. Yeah. Like one or two, but I just wasn't, they were in locations I wasn't interested in, which means I probably shouldn't have interviewed. Um, (laughs) uh, Or there were a few credit opportunities that at the time I didn't really understand what they were. And they were on. Um, I think it's so hard for kids that you're interviewing like a year out of school. Like you're barely, or you have the reps for banking, but you really don't even know. Like I remember being pulled aside by a fellow analyst at, at Rothschild. This had to be in during the second year. Like my, literally my second year, forget about the first year or during training or anything. And he was like, this is what private equity is. Yeah. <laughs> like this is like, I didn't even know this whole industry existed. Um, I was just in restructuring doing like those deal, you know, working with clients there and I didn't even realize like the whole world existed. And so it's just a different world now. Um, but yeah, I can, I can see where, um, if you don't have that conviction, if you don't have that early training and you don't know exactly the, the, the way to kind of show any sort of passion, if you're kind of just more of a intellectual floater, let's call it, (laughs) you can struggle because there's a lot of gunners. Yeah. And, um, and that's who should be getting the jobs probably, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I don't, I don't think that I got, you know, screwed by not getting those jobs. They probably went to people who were more deserving of it, had prepared more and are probably better fits for the roles. Yeah. Um, but you know, what, what's, when I was unsuccessful at it, that's when I started being introspective of, you know, okay, Josh, do you actually want to do this? Um, and maybe, you know, this is revisionist history, but uh, as an answer for the fact that I wasn't getting offers, but I, I really wasn't particularly interested in doing it. And what I'd learned in banking is that it really does become your life. And I know people, there are definitely people, and I have friends who have done the banking path and the fee path and have carved out a way to manage their lives. I was not good at it. It drove me crazy. I was not good at maintaining my social life. I was not exercising. I wasn't eating well. So like, all those things together made it pretty clear to me I need to make a change. Yeah. Um, so I actually left CS without a job. Um, and you left so it before your full year bonus, before your first yes. full bonus hit. That was the first thing my MD said to me when I quit. <laughs> He's like, well, you won't just stay for three more months and get your bonus. Um, in retrospect, uh, you would. Probably, I probably should have uh, stuck around, but... Uh, I didn't. Yeah, you probably gave up a good sixty to seventy thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah, now now I would like well, to after have. tax, it's like thirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That's really Make nice. You feel you better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I just I knew myself wasn't handling it that well, and that this wasn't really the path for me. Um, no, so. that's fair. By the end of my two years, I I had to get out. My my uh, the VP that really kind of I was closest with, um, who actually now runs the entire restructuring practice at Rothschild. He um, he was like, you know, basically, you know, what number to stay. And I, yeah. I was like, nothing. I was like, basically, yeah. like, if I had to give him an answer, it would have been so ridiculous. It would have been like $2 million or something like, <laughs> because of no amount of money at that point, like could, could have really made me be able to, to handle it longer. Yeah. Like, I feel like after those two years, I was like, really, I was just completely burnt. Yeah. Um, and what it took me a little while to figure out was that, I felt the same way it sounds like you did. Mm-hmm. And that, that was okay. <laughs> that didn't mean that there was something wrong with me or that investment banking is inherently bad. Mm-hmm. It was just that, you know, it wasn't the right fit for me. Yes, just uh, reality. Yeah. yeah. And I had confidence. There is that feeling when, you know, you've done through all that work to get the job, having confidence that like, 
this might be the best paying job I could do right now as a 23 year old, but you know, I am confident that I can make it work for myself and find, you know, additional future good paying jobs that are good for my career. That what, is not the what only- gave you that confidence? Because I feel like for me, I just felt like I didn't know what I didn't know. And so there's a little bit more of like, I have to have something lined up. What gave you the confidence just to quit outright like that? Or was it just like you had just reached the end? I'd kind of, it was a little bit of both. Like I'd kind of reached the end and <laughs> now I feel stupid, but I, I'll keep saying this was, I didn't even, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And yeah. I didn't eat as I would sit there and I, you know, talk to my friends or my siblings or my parents and they'd be like, well, what do you want to do? And yeah. I didn't even know what jobs were out there. Like I had a few friends in advertising and a bunch of friends in finance and consulting. And then I was like, it, there have to be other jobs. But I was at the point where I was like, I don't even have the time to be figuring this out. Right. So my answer to it was to quit and lay low and figure out what jobs were out there mm-hmm. and make it, you know, a full-time job or a part-time job to try to figure that out. So let's talk about that, that transition. So you quit. What's the first day like when you don't have to go in the office? <laughs> Such a relief. It was amazing. It yeah. was, I, I just, I slept and I had, I at that point lived with two guys and they both had, you know, normal hour jobs. So it was kind of crazy to me to, you know, be sitting on the couch at 530 and they would come home and I was like, wait, there's a whole life that you leave in the evenings after, after work. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I, that was fun for a little while. And then I started getting antsy about not having a job or any income. So right. I started, you know, just forcing myself to be on the job hunt. And so where did you look? What did you start doing for your research? Like um, in terms of yeah, obviously talking to more friends, that type of stuff in terms of well, yeah, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of looking at cool companies that were I was interested in in whatever industry they were and seeing if there was something where I could use my finance knowledge to give me a leg up. Um, so, you know, cool tech companies or startups in New York for the most part mm-hmm. and just going through their career pages and also just talking to people. And so is that, that's how you ended up at uh, F Sharp? Was called? <laughs> well, that one's actually kind of interesting, which is that my former associate at Credit Suisse his roommate or buddy was the CEO of that company. Their finance guy left like four weeks into my job search and he hit me up and said, hey, my buddy's looking for a guy. (laughs) I went in and interviewed um, and started a few days later. So it was funny. I had this whole methodical search and then found it through an (laughs) ex-colleague. It's usually how it works, right? I really liked it. I liked music a lot and they were in the music tech, ad tech space. Um, So it was a way for me to, you know, use some of my skill set, but also find something that was at least adjacent to my interests, personal interests. And so you were there for a pretty short stint. Tell me why so short. Uh, um, The company was, I really liked the people there uh, and the biz, it was a good idea. Um, I would say- It was just a startup. It was just like- yeah, it was, it's interesting because it was, it was a startup, but it also had like 55 employees, offices in New York and San Diego and London and Australia. So it was revenue generating. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were just, you know, the financial performance wasn't exactly what it needed to be. There was a little bit of customer concentration that was a little bit dangerous. And it was just not quite exactly what I thought I'd signed up for mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, I was doing interesting like finance work, but more like PFO. Yeah, like CFO type work, but I was in way over my head. So <laughs> Google was my best friend, which was good until it gets really scary because you have all these people who, who you need to make sure you can make payroll for. Um, and so I was doing that interesting hard stuff, but also like 
office administration and office management things that I was not interested in doing at all. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that mix I didn't love. Um, but I didn't, I left that because the opportunity came at, it was called KBB Partners now, now, uh, now called Concertive. Mm-hmm. And that one, I also found a guy who was my associate at Credit Suisse. Another one of his friends was one of the founders of this company. So I found two jobs in a row based on references from, from my Credit Suisse associates. So uh, that, that's been a happier path for me. I've been there uh, since 2015. That's really cool. And so tell me how, um, before you made that jump from F-Sharp to Concertive, did you, were you like looking um, like several months, for several months before kind of that connection was made or it was kind of like, it kind of just, it came to you? This one was organic. Uh, I probably should have been looking in retrospect, but I'd only been there for at F Sharp for nine months. Right. So I really I didn't want to. You know, if you look at my resume, and it's you know couldn't finish his two year analyst gig, and then leaves after a few months. So yeah. I was ready to stick it out. And then this guy who's I'm still in touch with, who's my associate, reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, "Hey, my buddy runs this company. Um, they're looking for someone who used to be an investment banker but doesn't want to work in investment banking anymore." Uh, you should talk to him. I went on the website. There are all these buzzwords. I didn't know anything about procurement or strategic sourcing. Um, and I said, no, thanks. And he said, no, you really should talk to them. Uh, so I did. <laughs> I had the phone call with uh, two of the co-founders, the CEO and the COO. They were really smart. They explained the business model and I loved it. And I thought the trajectory that they were charting was a really interesting one. So I'm, I'm glad I ended up being pushed into taking that phone call and I'm glad I did it, which I think is good advice too, which is take the damn phone call. Take the phone um, call, at least listen. Definitely. Um, and, and you know, the rest you could be history. shocked at some of these tiny companies that are like experiencing explosive growth. And if you can get on the train early, man. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, that's part of the lesson I learned of, you know, I had the feeling that there were all these great jobs out there that had to be that I just didn't know existed. And mm-hmm. this is an example of one, which is just in an industry I didn't even know existed. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, take the call. So was the, was the finance background kind of interesting? Do you think they were looking for a former banker because of the work ethic like that, or was it the actual finance stuff that it helps help? It's a little bit of both. Um, definitely the work ethic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even as we recruit right now and we try to recruit, lapsed investment bankers is you know you can't teach attention to detail in the way that an investment bank teaches attention to detail yeah Uh, and one of our big businesses is we help uh investment banks and private equity firms and hedge funds source and procure and negotiate contracts for data providers and research providers so like cap iq facts at bloomberg hundreds of others and these are massive contracts and our clients would a cfo would say why the hell am i paying you know a million bucks to cap iq what does anyone ever even use it for so they wanted someone who had been an investment banker who could say hey this is actually how people use this this is why you're paying so much money for it and this is how critical it is in addition to just negotiating the contract so they wanted that background less so that you could show the value of it of the the, this not only negotiate good prices for the service provider for 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 your clients but also explain to your clients why they even have it. Exactly. Instead of a CFO saying, you know, these kids, why do I need to spend all this money for these analysts to have something really saying to them, here's what this product is. Here's what right. the competitive landscape is. And here's why it matters mm-hmm. uh, was invaluable. And we still do a ton of that. Very cool. So what's yeah. the, what's the path? So you've been there for now almost five years. Yeah, it'll be five years in July. 
Yeah. So what's the, what's the path for you guys? Are you guys funded or is it all bootstrapped? Uh, we were bootstrapped for the first, the company's been around six years. Uh, for the wow. first five years, we bootstrapped our first customers who really had faith in us prepaid for the first year. Uh-huh. They said, prove out the model and then go from there. So that's what we did. <laughs> and then uh, almost exactly a year ago, we took on some funding from uh, a group of individual investors. Mm-hmm. Um, people who have you know spinning Rolodexes that have helped us grow the business. Um, and really trying to pivot from being a small business consulting firm uh, that's really services oriented to more of a tech platform. So we've spent a lot of time and investment over the last year building out our, our engineering team. Um, so yeah, we've hired a new VP of engineering and we're you know adding clients and adding spend categories that we're helping people in. Are you, um, are you at liberty to say kind of what you're building on the, on the tech side in terms of how, what, why, um, the, the technology platform is so important for the future? Definitely. So um, a lot of our business is aggregating volume together of our clients, for example, their air spend so that we can, you know, Goldman Sachs has a whole procurement team that'll go to Delta and say, hey, Delta, we spend $100 million a year with you guys. Give us the best corporate contract you possibly can. Yeah. Our clients, and I, I can't name them, but they're, you know, tier below some of the boutique investment banks, m advisory shops and smaller don't have the people internally to do that uh, or the time or the leverage. So we're building platforms to aggregate their data together so that when we go to the suppliers, we have information that we can slice and dice on so travel. It's a way to take the data that you're getting from your clients. I mean, that must be really hard because you've got to build the feeds yeah. from like their expense reports. Yes, or from their travel agencies. Or from the travel agencies into yeah. your into your platform. And yeah. then, you know, have it tagged all properly and all this stuff exactly. so you can slice and dice. Yeah. It. It That's just- the hard part. And then you need the human who is the expert in these contracts to then negotiate it. So yeah. where we started was with the humans. And now we want to, you know, give leverage to those people and make them really. Because right now they've been doing it mostly manually, like brutal brute strength. Or Yeah, we have some, you know, we have, like I said, we've recruited a lot of former investment bankers. So we have some of the best, you know, Excel oh, models you can make, but it's not quite the same as having real software engineers there. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. And we're doing this. A lot of our work is manual, but can be tech enabled. Um, so even, you know, negotiating a cap IQ contract or something like that, you know, our team, which is small, but mighty did, you know, 750 research contract negotiations last year, oh which God. you need smart people to do, but there is some mundane housekeeping that can be automated that we're building. Very cool. I love it. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really cool cool (laughs) idea. I think you guys are, um, it's probably going to be huge in 10 years. Um, Yeah. Um, But it sounds like you're, you know, for the future for you, you're probably sticking around, huh? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, We're just, we're really focused on building. Um, Our whole team is really convinced at the potential value and we're really, you know, we're proud of what we've built, but we do, very honestly think that we're just scratching the surface mm-hmm. uh, and our addressable market of, you know, mid-sized private equity firms, you know, right now we have 50 customers and we think that there's rooms that have hundreds of them. Um, so, you know, we do really think that we're just at the beginning here. Very cool. Well, anything else before we call it, Josh, it's been real fun. Anything um, you'd share kind of to, in terms of words of wisdom to your younger self or to the young listeners um, before we call it? 
Yeah, I, 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 this will be a repetition of what I said before, but and without knowing, you know, any of the individuals who are listening is just to have confidence in yourself that which either means that you should have conviction in the decisions you've made about your path and, you know, being in investment banking or moving forward or not, and that it's okay if the answer is or not to, <laughs> um, because there are a lot of really good opportunities out there. And, but the skills that I personally developed in investment banking from work ethic, attention to detail, but also just the nitty gritty on, you know, financial modeling uh, are continuing to be useful for me. Great. Well, Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. Of course. Thank you, Patrick. Also, with this being episode 100, I just wanted to give a quick thank you to all my listeners. This podcast has been listened to over 170,000 times, which is just awe-inspiring and surprising given that we started it less than a year ago. So thank you again to all of you that tune in. And as always, please always feel free to reach out, give me feedback, and help us keep improving. Thank you.